Hello and welcome to my first official blogcast, which is like a podcast, it's just shorter and it's just me. Uh, today I'm going to talk about a uh, context that I'd like to share with people with respect to meditation and I call it digging your well of Zen. So the idea of digging your well of Zen is basically like a little parable. And uh, when you think of meditation, if you're an experienced meditator or someone who's dabbled a bit or if you're a person who's terrified of sitting still, uh, I like to share the context of just digging a well, just because it's a very simple image. And also, it brings our attention to the relationship between, obviously, something like thirst or a need for water and survival and life and other things. <clears throat> and it connects that thirst basically with an activity or an intention or a practice, because it's all about moving in a direction to get the results you're looking for. So before I get into the well analogy, I guess, in detail, I'm just going to bring up, again, this sort of overall context, because I want to bring your attention to how valuable meditation is. So just imagine for a moment, or bring your attention to, uh, how basically impatient and cynical and disconnected modern life really is, well, in my opinion, compared to what most humans would have experienced as a social life or a family life or a professional interaction. Uh, you know, most of us live through our phones now. So just to bring to your attention uh, the opposite opportunity of being impatient or cynical or disconnected is to become kind and patient and more connected. Uh, if anything, the more you experience life as a team sport, the more you meet strangers and assume that if anything were to come up, you would be able to cooperate with that person in some way, the less stress you're going to feel, the less your mind is going to fantasize about danger and violence and having to be powerful or, you know, uh, more dangerous yourself in some way. Just to bring your attention to that polarity, because that's our choice in life. You know, we're either going to allow a pattern of behavior that society provides us, or we're going to create a pattern of behavior and experience that we choose for ourselves. And that balance is always going on for everybody. But again, meditation is just probably, the, at least in my experience, the fastest way to empower people to take control over their inner lives, which is most of your life. Also, I would say in my experience as a clinician, one of the biggest uh, things that I'm always assessing in people, I pay attention uh, to this myself, and it's a simple, simple thing, is basically, how is your adaptability? How adaptable are you? How much resources do you have to suddenly deal with sudden changes? Because that's all about adaptability. And I would say, and I've probably said many times before, that adaptability really is what health is. And when it comes to the context and the capacity we call adaptability, meditation is what I like to call universe grease. It just helps everything flow. It keeps things from feeling stuck together. Uh, a lot less friction happens in your life, in your relationships, and I think more, most importantly in, in the sense of meditation within your own mind. I mean, how much time do you, would you say you spend in a day kind of arguing with yourself or being grumpy with yourself or or uh, say clubbing yourself over the head with the stick of opinion and, and judgment that most of us carry around in our back pocket just in case um, you know we think we're going to use that kind of aggressive tactic to try and motivate ourselves. And I don't think that's ever actually worked for anyone, uh, at least as well as being positive and passionate and creative and, and uh, really in the moment. I would also say uh, that the more self-aware you are, the more self-confident you are. And confidence is a tricky thing. So I'm going to just do a real quick little thought experiment with you. Uh, I've never tried to do this 
through a microphone before, so hopefully this is going to work. So I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to ask you to think of the first three people that come to mind. And you can close your eyes if you want. So the word is going to be confident. So just take that moment. Three people, who are they? What are they like? What makes them confident to you? Just, you know, reflect on that. Then if the mind was a chalkboard, I'd give you a little hanky or something to wipe it clean because I'm going to say another word. And again, I'm going to ask you to think of the first three people that come into your mind. That word is comfortable. So now for the fun part. Were the three confident people the same as the three comfortable people? And I've probably asked that question to, I don't know, a thousand people. In my experience, about 90% of the people I've had this conversation with, um, the three confident people were different from the three comfortable people. And sometimes there's a little bit of uh, drift, uh, you know, in the sense of some fit under both. But for most people, it's a very distinct two groups of people. Why is that? Well, because in my opinion, confident people are usually the people we see doing everything they can to show up in the world, uh, to be fit or strong or smart or fast or rich or something. And they're often the people you just assume are going to have a great time in front of a room full of people. And uh, quite often those people are basically putting on a performance. You know, I mean, I've done ridiculous amount of public speaking and uh, sometimes if, if I'm having a sort of cynical day and I'm not feeling very connected, then it does feel like a performance. Uh, most of the other time, it's just me in a room full of people doing what we have to do. And it's that distinction, I think, that makes the difference between a person that looks confident and a person that looks comfortable. So notice that and ask yourself if you actually do feel confident in a comfortable way or you feel confident because you're good at performing something. Because that's a huge distinction and it's a big part of what meditation is about because the deeper you go into meditation, the less you would ever feel like you need to put on a performance. I mean, think of the Dalai Lama or Eckhart Tolle or other people who sit in, you know, an auditorium full of people speaking to the meditation experience or to consciousness itself. And they're just sitting in a chair having a chat. You don't see them, you know, being jumping up and down, making everyone clap, doing the Tony Robbins, you know, thing to try and convince people that there's going to be this big state shift and you're going to be somebody else and the world's going to be amazing and your oyster and all that kind of fun stuff. So back to adaptability, and this is my fundamental point. Uh, the more you can meditate, and the more deeply you are invested in awareness, the more you're going to be aware of the difference between performing in a confident way and just being yourself in a comfortable way. And if anything, that is essentially you being the most adaptable version of you because you're not trying, you're not faking it, you're not uh, doing anything over the top. So that's just a little context, meditation, dig your well of Zen. Before we get into the you know details, just keep asking yourself, Am I aware of the difference between feeling confident and comfortable? Am I aware of my adaptability as myself? Or am I always looking for an external reference or a source of approval so that I can, you know, feel like I'm actually doing okay? Quick question as I get into this. Have you ever actually tried meditating? 
And when I ask that question, obviously, I think most of us have probably taken a class or done a quick meditation as a part of a seminar or something like that. But what I'm really asking is, have you ever really, really dug deep, spent time, watched the illusions kind of crumble away, moved yourself towards your pain instead of away from it until you've become a person who's as consciousness, absolutely comfortable and absolutely confident that you can face anything and everything that life is going to throw your way. I'm not suggesting it's going to be a breeze, but at least you're you. And that's a huge thing. And a lot of us are trying to figure out how to be ourselves. Uh, I mean, what comes to mind in that moment is that trust game kids play in, you know, school, you know, where somebody holds their arms out and falls backwards and hopes their friend is going to be there to catch them. Well, in the sense of meditation, you are that friend and, uh, why are you falling backwards into your own arms when you could just move ahead as yourself? You know, and that's sort of a fun, you know, game to play is, you know, why are we always looking for someone else to catch us when it's always going to inevitably be us? And, and just to add this for, I don't know, garnish or something, but uh, if you become that person who's falling back into your own arms and catching yourself, you're going to be very quickly recognized by everyone around you as that person who is reliable and who is present and who is available. You know, if you're trying to find a way to connect to other people uh, more thoroughly, more instinctively, more passionately, more presently, and more easily, start with you. If you're a person who doesn't really feel in any way attracted to sitting on a bench or a cushion or, or going to a class or uh, following a guided meditation, you know, thing on your phone or something like that, uh, there are a lot of other ways to meditate. You know, there's walking meditations, lying meditations, qigong yoga, where there's, you know, repetitive movements or, you know, gestures or postures that you can hold for a period of time, uh, exercising your physical body while bringing your awareness into the practice. So no meditation is not being tied to a chair. So let's get into the well. The mind naturally needs to have a kind of confidence uh, and that confidence is to solve problems, to find clarity, to not feel hounded by, you know, the habits that we have, you know, usually within our mind. And I mean, obviously you could refer to like Jedis and ninjas and Kung Fu masters and, you know, yogis and things like that as someone who exemplifies that kind of capacity. But you could look at a chef who's really good at, you know, their knife skills or a cab driver who's really, really good at getting you from A to B. And in a way, you know, they're doing the same thing. They've, they've found a way to just fit into the moment and connect to everything around them and apply themselves to what they're doing. So anyone can do this. It doesn't take uh, some kind of black belt. I would say even more importantly, you know, your mind, my mind, anyone's mind needs to know, and by know I mean have had the experience enough times to recognize that the outcome is predictable. Any, any person, you know, any mind needs to know and have the experience that they can reassert themselves, reset themselves after some kind of stress or trauma, um, because life is going to be full of stress and inevitably there's going to be things that are painful. So again, a big part of this is just, I mean, just ask yourself, what would be different in your life if, you know, I gave you the red pill or the blue pill that would, for the rest of your life, give you a sense and a state of mind that you can respond in the moment to anything and reassert yourself as your whole self after the worst thing that you can imagine happening. 
because I think that's inevitably, again, the adaptability thing, the confidence thing, and the self-awareness. I mean, that's what it gives you. It's the biggest gift you could imagine, really. So as we get ready to dig our well, we're going to have to pick a spot. And as we find that spot, uh, in the sense of you're in the forest looking for a place to start digging, maybe it would be good to find a spot that really feels potent to you or feels beautiful to you. No, I mean, not, obviously you're going to have to know enough about how water moves underground to know how to find a place to dig a well, but I'm bringing up this idea of kind of set or setting because where you meditate or how you meditate, uh, the environment can you know have positive or negative impact. You know, if you go to a meditation class and you've got gongs and bells and benches and robes and uh, nice music or incense and stuff like that, uh, if that's what you identify with as, you know, the cauldron or the uh, crucible of your transformation and growth, then that's where you should be doing your meditation. If you feel more kind of like a hermit in the sense that, you know, you want a special room or a corner in a room in your home that's just dedicated to your spiritual practice, uh, be it sitting or standing or moving, you know, and maybe there's pictures of, you know, your teacher or um, people that inspire you in, in terms of your practice. You know, maybe there's certain music you like or a kind of furniture or the incense thing or or however you would choose to manifest your particular uh, temple, if you will, uh, that set, that setting is important because it contains, you know, something I think we'd all call mojo, you know, or feng shui, you know, you know, when you move into that part of your house, you know, when you go to that class, you know, maybe you go to this special place by a special tree in a park that you like, you go off into to nature, my favorite thing to do. You're going there because you want to access that feeling of uh, that recognizable connection. That Okay, this is where I go to do this practice. And even as you get closer to it, I mean, you could be closing your car door, opening your front door, moving into your, I don't know, attic or basement or back room or something. And as you get closer and closer to the place of practice, there's that sense of, you know, it's like when you meet somebody, you reach out your hand to shake their hand. It's like, okay, here comes the connection. Here comes the permission to allow my experience to be um, malleable. I mean, if you meet someone and shake their hand, it's 50-50, hopefully, uh, in terms of who's controlling what happens next. And that's a huge part of this is, the distinct awareness that you're giving over the driver's seat of your mind to your practice. And for a lot of people, I think that's actually the terrifying thing. I mean, so much of modern life is about control, self-control, controlling others, controlling money, controlling debt, controlling your kids, controlling the people you work with, uh, controlling, well, it's impossible, but attempting to control the people that, you know, are driving to work next to you and maybe doing a worse job at driving than you are. So, again, as you move towards your your well, um, or the place you're going to dig it, it's got to be a place with some mojo. It's got to be a place that you trust, and it's got to be a place that, again, you can lose some control. Because otherwise, you're basically just, you know, gritting your teeth, you know, parking your butt on your meditation bench, as an example. <clears throat> eyes open, eyes closed, breathing, ready, go. And there is almost an aggressive sense of, of domination. I will beat the crap out of my mind. And uh, I've never seen that actually go well. But, you know, I've, 
I'm reminded in this moment of uh, one of the biggest meditation retreats I ever participated in. And one of my friends that was there, uh, and this was nine months meditation every day. And uh, my friend was uh, also my roommate. And uh, and I remember seeing him out of the corner of my eye during one of our meditation practices. And it kind of looked like he was really intensely st- dressed out and he was sort of rocking back and forth and uh we left the practice and we were walking home and i asked him i was like so you look like you're having a hard time there uh what was up and he's like well i just decided to experiment uh and at that point in the practice we were using an incremental breathing practice where you were uh, asked to count your breath uh, out loud but inside your head i know that's a fun thing to say but uh subvocally and just inside your mind you'd be counting you know say six seconds in and six seconds out or something like that and my friend mark was uh, as he was sharing this story on the way home he said oh yeah i was yelling the numbers really loud inside my head and when i thought back i was like yeah it looked like he was having a pretty big argument with himself because he was like you know literally like moving back and forth in his body as if he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And I guess he was having a lot of stress that day. And he thought that would be the best way to take control of his mind was to yell at it. (laughs) Uh, We both had a good laugh about it actually uh, many years later because um, he said it actually really helped, you know, but he only had to do it once to realize that, um, you know, it's like yelling at your kid for spilling the milk. I mean, at some point you're going to have to clean up the milk and make friends with your kid again and, um, move on. But in some moments, I think if you're having a really, really impatient, cynical, uh, unfriendly day, then absolutely. If you're going to need to be in control of your mind, take, take it by the reins if you have to, but recognize, try only do that if you have to, because that isn't going to get you where you're going. It's just going to keep reminding you that you're separate from yourself and you have to be in control of that separate self to be able to just, you know, get away with a minute uh, of being uh, more, I don't know, content or at ease. And I don't think that's really an at ease thing to do. So let's say you found your spot and it's got lots of mojo. Now you need a shovel. So in my mind, when I think of a shovel and the the sense of meditation, the handle of the shovel is your spine or your posture or your embodiment. I mean, that's, that's a thing that's going to allow you to progress forward in any way. So you could be walking, sitting, standing, you could be swimming, um, anything at all. It's just to become super aware of the way your body actually is aligned to itself, aligned to gravity. You know, you want to lengthen out your spine uh, by allowing your head to kind of reach upwards as if maybe there's a bowl on your head full of water and you don't want that water to fall off of your head. So you kind of reach up to hold it up. And at the same time, you want to allow the weight of that water to kind of rest through your entire spine, you know, into the ground a little bit. And this is what we call balancing up and down, which you can do in this moment listening to, to me chat. You know, let your spine extend upwards until you feel like maybe you're imitating a drill sergeant in the army. And that's probably too far. And then allow yourself to settle. And if you settle so far that you start to feel collapsed, that's going to interfere with your breathing. It's going to interfere with your somatic state, right? So if you're all crumbled up in a um, bad posture, looking like you're about ready to fall asleep, that's the state of your mind is, oh, I'm so tired. I just want to fall asleep. And that's not a focused, aware place to go deep with yourself. That's time to go to bed. You know, if you really need to sleep, go to bed. Because obviously meditation is about being the opposite of asleep. It's about being awake.
Meditation is obviously the opposite of about going to sleep. It's about fundamentally waking up. So if we were to take um, that shovel, got a good handle, now you need a good blade for your shovel. And that blade is going to be your breath. And there's a lot of different ways to use your breath. I mean, if you could go online and uh, just do a quick search on meditation breath work and you see uh, probably a hundred different unique ways to alter the way you breathe to induce a deeper state of presence and or awareness and or rhythm and or ways to apply at uh, intention attention uh, often i say you know if you're breathing in breathe in something uh, that needs your attention and as you breathe out breathe out an image of the, the solution um, I mean, that's fairly mechanical in the sense of getting stuff done in your life, but uh, obviously there's a lot of different things you can do with an inhale, with an exhale, with pausing your breath, with counting your breath, uh, using mantra, using all kinds of things. But in meditation, you know, at first a lot of people just, you know, I got a good posture and I'm breathing well and deeply. And I think a lot of people just sort of have the intuition that now you zone out and get into a blank state where you're not allowed to think and you're winning. No, not really. That's not what meditation is really about. Uh, but that's, again, what a lot of people assume is going to happen. So that's what they practice in their mind for, and that's what they wait to see happen or try and create in their practice. And that's uh, kind of a dissociation practice. It's not really a deep meditation practice. So if you've got good posture, you've got a really clear uh, focus with your breath and how that keeps your mind, body actively engaged in whatever practice you're practicing, now you're meditating. So now you got your shovel, let's start digging. Now, when, again, bring your attention back to your spiritual thirst, your mental need for uh, more adaptability within the space of your mind. Same with your emotional body, your emotional self. If you can't choose your state, you're always in reaction to the state that's chosen for you. So let's get digging. First thing that most people experience in meditation and in the metaphor of digging a well, I would describe as spiritual dust, which is a part of your mind that likes to complain and have opinions. There's actually a tenant in Taoism called non-comparison where the only part of the practice is to catch yourself every time you've made an evaluation of anything. You, other people, that dog that just walked by your window. Uh, you know, if you're sitting there with a clipboard inside of your mind, you know, making your opinions the most consistent thing that you attach your sense of self to, you know, in the sense of I'm an arrogant person because I can judge other people or I'm an insecure person because I keep projecting other people's judgments onto me through my own mind. Um, those things can only be judgments if they're like a comparison of some kind. So spiritual dust, you're digging away, you're in your mojo place. You're swinging your shovel around. And the first thing to notice, and you're not trying to control it, you're not trying to beat it, you're just trying to sit there and go, huh, look at my opinions go. Look at me complain about, you know, this, or feel arrogant about that, or feel insecure about this. And notice that it's all based on comparison. So give yourself permission to just, uh, you know, notice and in, in a lot of Eastern traditions, a lot of indigenous traditions, when they share a teaching, it usually is going to sound like non-comparison. It's going to sound like non-conflict. It's going to sound like non-separation, um, you know, non-duality and things like that. So there's a reason why. 
if I was to say, you know, your objective as a spiritual person is to become super badass, awesome, enlightened, better than anybody else, notice that you're now attached to a comparison, right? I will be enlightened someday. I will be free of suffering someday. Um, you know, and we would call those words like enlightenment. Uh, you know, so our, our affirmation to meditation is a competitive comparative result. That may sound like I'm going a bit far afield, but it does bring the conversation very clearly back to this thing about non-comparison or, you know, non-conflict is notice that non-comparison just means when you bump into comparison in your mind, you would turn around and walk the other way towards, uh, you know, just resting the, the need to, to be in control of things. So that's why those traditions share teachings in that way. Because instead of saying super, super enlightened or, you know, level 10 of Jedi cult, whatever, you're just given something to notice and embrace and accept and to put down and to let go and then to move on. Because that's what non-conflict or non-comparison or all those other things ask you to do is just notice, you know, come to a place of peace, resolution and awareness and obviously embracing the truth of the fact that that's what you've learned to do with your mind. And then turn around, you know, or bring your attention to another uh, opportunity of, of consciousness. And that's the tricky beginning is a lot of people, I would say, spend oh, the first year or two um, in their kind of more solo attempt uh, with meditation. And, you know, it could be 20 minutes a day of just sitting down there watching your opinions kind of battle it out. And clearly, when you get up, you know, from your 20 minutes or whatever of meditation, you just walk away with either a negative or positive opinion of you and your meditation. So, it's all about the dust at first. But, luckily, um, you can put on a bandana or something. Um, you know, wait until it's windy out or, you know, something in the sense that you are not going to identify with the dust as you or as the process of meditation. It's just the way it's, it's just the way you've learned to use, you know, ideation and, and language in your head. And again, trying to say, I will just stop, you know, comparing and complaining. Uh, that's again, going to make you rigid and you're going to probably start yelling the numbers you're counting in your head, like my friend Mark. So hopefully here you are, you know, you're committed to this. You're getting used to the dust. You're not paying attention to the part of your mind that wants to compare and compete and complain. The next thing you're going to deal with, I call spiritual bugs. So you're digging your well, and maybe you've uh, inadvertently somehow irritated a hornet's nest or somebody else, or there's ants crawling up your leg or, you know, bugs. Eek. The bugs are basically kind of habits of distraction that you use to protect yourself from going deeper into you. It's the essence of addiction. It's the essence of uh, a lot of psychological pathologies is we're so caught up in and so familiar with a certain track of thought. Uh, I mean, obviously you're thinking about sex in a, in a meditation practice. I'm not saying that's good or bad, obviously, because <laughs> what I just talked about for five minutes, I'm saying that in your practice of meditation, interesting that you're allowing a familiar pattern uh, of fantasy or, or inner uh well, distraction to take over. So I would encourage anyone, you know, 
as you get deeper and deeper into the practice, into the digging of your well, start to make a little mental checklist of your particular bugs. You know, the things that keep you from staying in your meditation. You know, if I could figure out what went wrong with that relationship five years ago, I think I'd finally feel more confident in my next relationship. So I'm going to sit here and instead of practicing my meditation, I'm going to just rehearse conversations with strangers, rehash old conversations, and really, really, really... um, well, not meditate at all. (laughs) So get used to the bugs and try and embrace them. You know, if you're sitting there fantasizing about, you know, sex or thinking about your next relationship, or uh, maybe you think a lot about money, you think a lot about politics, you're, you know, there's a particular conspiracy theory that really has your attention. Cool. And you could do that later. So they're just bugs. But you have to embrace that they're there and accept them and eventually ask yourself how much uh, how much of you are those thoughts? How much of you has to be invested in the outcome of a fantasy? And when you recognize there is no value in a future state and there is no value in trying to fix a past state, um, at least with language, then move on. Just let the bugs crawl around. That's their job. And they're never going to go away. I've been meditating for 40 years. And if I'm not in my practice, I'm sitting there, standing there, or whatever I'm doing, running the mind I would have, you know, while I'm having a cup of tea in a coffee shop, just going blah, blah, blah. So don't feel bad about it. I'm not judging anyone for that. I'm not judging myself for it. I'm just saying, if you've committed to using meditation in whatever way you have for your own well-being, it's going to have some bugs and you just have to let them crawl around, do their thing. You cannot win. (laughs) Killing them with a big swatter is kind of like you trying to kill a part of you and that doesn't sound so healthy. So let's say you're digging and you're good with the dust. You're kind of, you know, giving your bugs some nicknames and uh, made a little bit of friends with them. That's often what I do. Next thing you're going to bump into are what I would call spiritual roots. Now, at a certain level, spiritual roots sound awesome, and in a way they are. But I'm speaking of the spiritual roots that have to do with deep patterns of behavior, deep patterns of the way your parents tried to control you or manipulate you or raise you, essentially, to be a person that they understood how to deal with. And uh, we all have a lot of those going around on the inside of ourselves. And this is where I would say, you know, and I'm almost hopping up and down in myself right now because I... I'm recording this standing up. So I'm almost jumping down right now uh, as I talk about the roots because it's really an exciting time for people in their meditation because it's when you finally really get to see you uh, as the probably scared um, animal that you are in the one sense that we all have ways that we try and get around the hard parts of our life, get away from the dangers, get away from the responsibilities or go in and take over the responsibilities and be the person who, you know, gets the best salesperson of the year award or whatever. It's those patterns of behavior that these spiritual roots are almost kind of like erosive patterns. I'm sure you've walked down a dirt road somewhere in your life and you can see that after a rainstorm water leaves those little ruts in in the road and those ruts are erosive patterns and if you know there was a torrential downpour eventually those ruts will damage the road to the point where it's no longer a road and that can happen with people in the sense of mental and emotional pathology and bad habits and stuff so 
as you're digging your well and you start to bang into things that are not annoying dust and irritating bugs, but something that now you really have to literally dig deep within yourself to find the mojo and the patience and the compassion to dig into something that you actually feel very strongly is a survival part of you. You know, this, this tactic, this pattern, uh, this belief system, you know, whatever it is, it's gotten you this far in your life. And it's kind of hard to just throw that stuff out the back window. So you really have to, you know, grab your, your shovel by the handle, really dig deep with your blade and accept that you have to go deep into this and you have no idea how thick the root is how hard it's going to be to get through, but you just have to make the commitment to keep moving towards that pattern, towards the difficulty. Um, you'll notice, obviously, meditation is meant to be, you know, a lifestyle uh, or a, a life skill. So it's not like you're going to sit down in a meditation, you know, weekend workshop and work through all your family stuff, although you could, but I wouldn't expect it to happen that way. So as you get into this deeper stuff, you're going to notice in your day-to-day -day life how you interact with people. As you're interacting with people, you're going to start noticing that these patterns really want to just jump out and say, hey, play with me and let me guide this conversation or let me try and be the seductive person or let me do the opposite and find a really negative way to deal with someone who's attracted to you. Whatever it is that's going on, it's going to become more and more and more loud in your day-to-day -day experience. And it's, you know, in, in a way, it's like you kind of have to untie a fairly difficult knot in your shoelaces. You just got to sit there and dig into it and, and explore it and, and chew on it or whatever it takes. And these patterns will never go away. You know, they've become a kind of uh, social instinct, if you will. But once you've accepted them, become very intimate with them, understood their roots in you, and eventually replaced them, hopefully with something more conscious and patient and kind, then you'll notice, and I've seen this in my own life, that if something triggers me enough that I go running with some protocol I picked up from my parents or a teacher or a friend, and it's a really dysfunctional pattern, for me, that's just like the dashboard light in my car. You know, okay, time to pull over, pit stop. What happened that allowed me to get so unconscious that I reached for that particular mode of uh, behavior or, or, you know, style of relationship so that I could, you know, get through a moment. You know, I've, I mean, as a parent, I can see in the, I don't know, my son's 16 years old and now that he's, you know, strong man. Sometimes we run into um, moments of conflict or impatience and I pull out of my hat something my father would have done. And he usually stops me in my tracks because we have a very conscious relationship and he will say, you know, that that was not cool. And I'll sit back and go, oh, wow, that wasn't me at all. Okay. And then we have a little check in and make sure it's all good and move on. And uh, I feel really blessed with that part of our relationship because, you know, it keeps me honest on my dashboard lights because imagine what would happen in any family if, um, and this happens a lot around children in adolescence, parents just sort of go, oh my God, you know, I got to control this monster of hormones and opinions and, and needs and impulses and uh, impatience because teenagers are pretty impatient. And, um, you know, that's usually when the most negative programming builds up in children, which eventually they're going to put onto their children unless they become conscious. 
And, you know, if I had, say, five kids, and uh, I have one, but if I had five, whatever pattern of dysfunction I built with my first kid through adolescence would be the pattern I would probably try with everyone after that, because now it's a pattern. So these roots are deep. They're hard to get through. They're the best teachers uh, that you... uh, they're like basically the best teachers you're going to have because they're the things that you do unconsciously that create consequences in your life that actually make up most of your life. Because if most of your life is cleaning up the mess from bad decisions, which is a lot of what life is, then, well, now you're free. And that's amazing. So if you can get through the roots of your mind uh, in the sense of big patterns, now you're basically free of those patterns. And this is where waking up really starts to feel like uh, waking up. This is where meditation really feels like, oh my God, this stuff really works. Because now you're becoming the person that you would choose to be yourself, especially around social conditioning and how you communicate with people or how you communicate with yourself, which is so essential to what meditation is about. So another thing you're going to bump into are obviously rocks. Now, I think of rocks, you know, the ones that are like, I don't know, the size of your fist, the size of your head. Um, I think of those things in this, again, the parable of digging your well as strong emotional experiences, strong emotional patterns. Um, but as emotion, not as like the roots being a big psychological thing, the rocks are basically just what I would call the emotional uh, pain you still hold within yourself. You know, uh, you know Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. Uh, in my clinical practice, I'm a big, big proponent of the whole somatic self, uh, body-based psychotherapy, uh, relationship because maybe it's just me, but those solidified parts of ourselves as emotional pain, uh, as experiences that are still sitting in us, um, they're the things that cause the most disease. I mean... Uh, indigenous people often describe cancerous tumors as solidified tears. So when you bump into those rocks, I mean, you may want to just grab them and throw them as far away from your well as you possibly could. Get away from my sacred mojo place, you bad thing. And if that's what you decide to do, go for it. My recommendation, though, is to use those rocks basically to build the structure of the top of your well. You're digging down, you're five feet in, you bump into a rock... And now your job is to figure out what that rock is made of. How did it start? You know, why do I feel that feeling? Where is that feeling the most intense? What triggers it uh, consistently day to day in my life? And if I can really get a feel for it, hold it real close to my heart, wash it off a little bit, I might notice that it's kind of beautiful and it would fit really, really nice on, you know, the north side of my well. And, uh, you know, now it's a part of my mojo and it's a part of the, I don't know, What's that saying? Scars are this tapestry of the soul, you know? So emotional woundedness is a big source of your wisdom. You just have to find a way to accept it, embrace it, and place it in a uh, conscious way so that it's a consistent reminder of of life. And uh, I would say more than anything, uh, or more than any other part of the trajectory of, you know, beginning a meditation practice and then moving through it until you're a pretty experienced meditator. This process of really bumping into your rocks, cleaning them off, placing them in a sacred way, uh, not only is going to make you feel the most uh, mature and the most kind with yourself, you're inevitably 
going to be completely a different person in conversations with people about their feelings, their traumas, their past, uh, their fears, because you're an experienced person with self-compassion. You're an experienced person with deep acceptance and deep letting go. You know, because you place those rocks in your well, uh, in the structure of the top of your well, as a way of embracing the experience, but you're also letting it go by putting it in a place. So, fun. Uh, <clears throat> so, the rocks, the emotional pain body part of meditation, uh, um, I don't think that's ever going to be over because we keep bumping into the world and creating new little rocks. Um, hopefully, they'll be small. Uh, and not, not too much trouble, but, you know, that that is life. So hopefully you're still digging away at your well. You're really, you know, you don't even notice the dust anymore. Uh, you've probably put the bugs to work. Uh, you're really not bumping into a lot of roots anymore. Uh, the process of finding, identifying, cleaning, and uh, letting go or releasing, you know, emotional past trauma, that's sort of, you know, your thing now with yourself and other people. I'd also say that, um, again, in this metaphor, you're going to eventually, you know, hopefully run into a really big rock. And why would I say hopefully? The big, big rocks are what I would call your spiritual mentors. You know, people that you sought out in some way, maybe you're just reading their book, or uh, hopefully you've got to work with them on a one-on-one -on -one level in some way, or they've taught you uh, a part of a practice, or maybe that's your yoga teacher or something. But it's a person who um, has a kind of weird responsibility in your life to be a model for something. And we often run into a lot of dysfunction in those relationships. I can say that as a med meditation teacher, Qigong teacher, Kung Fu teacher and stuff. Even as a professor of medicine, a uh, public speaker about health, you know, whatever. Everyone's always uh, projecting on to the expert whatever they've projected on to the practice, you know, as a Chinese doctor, I think I'm supposed to be able to levitate or something. So I'm just kidding. But you know, so when it comes to this uh, weird uh, distraction with mentors, the big rock part is everything that you still hold as uh, missing. If it's missing in you, missing in the world, missing in your mentor, it's this whole big thing around, you know, I want to fill up the space of my life, my heart, my mind, my spirit with the right stuff. And I want to see it there and I want it to be done and I want to, you know, tie a little bow on it, make sure it's over. And obviously, again, with meditation, that's not the point, but it is a part of what we project onto the practice and what we project onto our, our teachers. So um, take a moment and see if you can... You know, if you do happen to have a mentor or, you know, an ally in the world with respect to spiritual practice, ask yourself, do you really know who that person is? Have you really ever met them? Or have you just spent a lot of your time in a very extended kind of job interview to see if they're actually the performer you want them to be, to teach you to be the performer that you think that you're supposed to be? And hopefully you only get one of those. <laughs> If you need a lot of big rocks or you're a person who've, you know, you've run from rock to rock to rock or mentor to mentor to mentor or attempt to fill up yourself with some performance art to control how your life goes, that's the best teacher you're going to have. Weird as it sounds, the biggest benefit most people find from seeking out teachers is all of the confusion that happens between the student perspective and what they expect the teacher perspective to be. 
or perception might be a better word. So just take a moment and imagine the opposite experience. You know, you hire a spiritual teacher in some way. Um, after years of interaction and, and hopefully evolution and growth, wouldn't it be amazing, and hopefully this is your experience or will be soon, to sit with that person just as another person, you know, recognizing you've both spent a lot of time in the same canoe paddling in the same direction and nobody is the winner. Nobody is better. Nobody's righter, more powerful, uh, in, you know, in some abstract sense. They're just somebody else who shares uh, a relationship with a practice and they happen to have maybe some more experience than you. If you become a meditation teacher yourself at some point, or maybe you are already, um, get used to that being the big aha thing with people is the technology of a practice is something you could probably write on the stall of a bathroom, you know, breathe like this, sit like this, focus on that. And I'm not saying that out of disrespect, but um, I'm just thinking of the, I don't know how many people I've had conversations with after years of teaching and interacting and stuff like that. They're going, you know, I used to think that, you know, that you were this or that you were supposed to that, or I was really disappointed when I heard you had this kind of disease because you're supposed to be like, you know, all powerful or whatever like that. And the, the decompression of expectation uh, that people have expressed to me um, the big smile on their face and my face is me noticing the decompression of expectation that person now has of themselves. And that's huge. So hopefully you bump into a big rock. Feel free to pick me as the person who's supposed to be impeccable in some way because I'm not in the stories I could tell about that. <laughs> but just notice that's something that we do. Uh, we do it with TV stars. We do it with athletes on, you know, if you're into boxing, you're going to have a lot of expectations of your favorite boxer, but they're just a person who likes boxing. So a couple more quick ones. Um, so you're digging, you've got the rocks, you got the big rocks, and occasionally you're going to get these little nuggets. And because we all like gold, we're going to say that little nuggets of gold. And I'm going to use those nuggets as a metaphor for really deep, like, jarring, echoing, terrifying, hit by lightning moments of insight where you're just like, oh, oh, you know, that whole part of me has been a lie. That whole part of the world is irrelevant. That whole, <clears throat> I don't know, that whole chasing your tail around, you know, money, control, power, wealth or whatever, uh, assuming that that's somehow going to free you up in, in, in some magical way, uh, never works out that way. So there's all these little insights that people get, but anyone, uh, I love this part of life. I could probably sit here while I'm standing here, but, um, and think of all the nuggets that I've ever heard other people share with me, the little nuggets that I've come up with in my own life that have really changed, you know, my own experience of how to be here as parables or as mantras, as rules or as commandments or, I don't know, something really dramatic. <laughs> Funny thing is those insights only work in the moment that they're meant to work. I mean, you could go and buy all the gold nuggets on the planet in the sense of spiritual wisdom that you could write down on a fortune cookie and it doesn't do anything because the insight only, it's like a, this is a bit of a medical analogy, but it's like how a neurotransmitter pops into a receptor site that activates uh, maybe the release of another hormone or something. 
it only it can only do that in that one moment when it's needed and when the the result of that you know expression of a hormone is needed so you can't force insights i mean i love reading i know roomy poems or watching i don't know in instagram stuff with really beautiful wise quotes on it because it's a nice affirmation but I can pretty much guarantee the person who wrote that down for the first time, they probably had tears in their eyes because that realization gave them permission to change the entire trajectory of their life. <clears throat> so, almost done. Here we are, digging our well. I hope you really get that these metaphors are really just meant to uh, inspire you to stick with your practice, uh, whatever your practice happens to be. Uh, maybe I'll quickly plug something. So uh, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard other podcasts or you've seen me on YouTube videos or you're, you know, you're checking out my blog or something like that. And um, <clears throat> sorry, or you've checked out my blog or you're, you know, you've heard about me in some way. This isn't about me, but the opportunity I'd like to share with you is I've got to just develop this course. It's going to be uh, about a 10-week course or a 10-month course, depending on how you choose to do it. And it's on applied meditation. So if you're looking for some guidance and you're not sure of what style of meditation might be the one that's going to be the most effective for you, we're going to go through a whole bunch of different kinds of meditations or what I call applied meditations. And uh, I'm using the term applied meditation to bring people's attention to the distinction between sit, breathe, shut up, and sit focus and like a shaman or something go deep into a practice to profoundly change the way you experience the world and perhaps you know maybe in doing that you are even fundamentally changing the world so uh, i think it's going to be called 10 weeks to higher consciousness that sounds a bit presumptuous but uh yeah i hang my head in the shame of marketing stuff but that's life so if you're looking for some guidance in, in meditation, get a hold of me through uh, social media or check my website out because I think it's coming out the middle of October 2017. So if you're interested, check it out. Uh, if not, um, let other people know. And uh, if you do happen to know of a really good opportunity for people uh, that I may not be aware of, please let me know because uh, I'm not just interested in people accessing whatever I happen to produce as support. I just want to make sure I can direct people to the most appropriate support that's out there. So yeah, please, if you know of a really good meditation practice opportunity, uh, let me know. That'd be great. Thank you very much. So here we are almost done digging our well. It's looking beautiful with all those rocks of, you know, previous emotional pain into a nice little, uh, the top of your well. I'm not sure what that actually is called. I think that's actually what they call the well. You know, maybe you have a ladder or whatever in the sense of going from not deep state of practice into deep state of practice, but there should be a connection more consistently to the fact that, you know, you're usually a minute away from a deep meditative experience. And, um, I describe this part of the process of digging a well as basically being asked deep in a bunch of mud. You know, and you might be kind of raising your eyebrows going, what? I thought we were going to be enlightened next. <laughs> Almost. So if you're digging through all of the things I've already talked about, and you're kind of getting to the place where there's a lot of water, a lot of clarity, a lot of other things rushing into your life, it's going to be muddy because you're still a person living in a very, very messy life and a messy world with a lot of messy things that we have to deal with. So as you're digging away and now you're kind of covered in mud, uh, the idea is to keep digging towards the water, you know, identifying with the 
peacefulness, identifying with the clarity, identifying with uh, the experience of your true self in some way. Until uh, over time, there's an, there's much, much more water in your well than there is silt or mud. And over time, especially with a lot of stillness, you can imagine that uh, the... You can say that the mud starts to settle, the dirt settles down, lands at the bottom of your well, and now you have this access to clear water. And this is a very, very difficult part of the process of meditation because as we get closer to a kind of clarity, a kind of control, a lot of our instincts to do that will come back in very subtly and they'll probably often have a very spiritual name for itself. But... uh this is the probably slipperiest part. This is where a lot of people uh, end up going in to some very strange places, you know, where they decide that they're super powerful or super important or really smart. Because there's kind of a polarity in life uh, between actual patience and being in control. So now that it's all slippery, you're going to have an opportunity in the you know months, years that you're going to be in that uh, you know ass deep in the mud part of meditation. And the real tricky slippery slope there is the distinction between patience and control. In whatever practice you're practicing, true patience is the opposite of control. Real control or self-control in you know some martial sense of this is a kind of impatience. So as you, you know, allow the mud to settle and the clear nectar of, of meditation water to, to rise. It's about being patient. There's a difference between and a distinction that most people spend, you know, a good part of their uh, spiritual life working with is the distinction between the experience of connection with others, with yourself and with knowing others and knowing yourself. Just I don't know, sit with that one for a second. Because if you're truly invested in connection, in the sense of communication with or without touch, uh, with or without language, then that's all you need. Because it's it's like you put two kids in a crib, you know, it doesn't matter what languages they speak, what races they're from, or, you know, probably even if they're from the same species, they're just going to connect. They don't need to know anything about the other kid or critter in the crib. And that's the thing that's very, very challenging for us today because we live again in this very polarized, impatient, cynical, kind of kind of brutal society. There's a connection with meditation and then there's knowing how to meditate, which is the one that's going to get you deeper into the experience, clearly the connection. There's a connection with your life partner or your child or your, you know, good friends. And then there's the presumption that you know these people and that knowing them is as valuable as the experience of the connection you get from them. And nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, as you go, you know, deeper into this practice and you're really starting to get the benefit of sipping and drinking deep of that nectar, that beautiful clear water you've found in your life. So now letting go becomes almost like a, a default. You know, you connect to someone, you have a really, really, you know, good sense of the possibility of what may happen, and you let that possibility go. Because trying to impatiently control them and you to make that possibility happen is unconscious. And, and it's impatient. And it's, uh, uh, I guess they would just call that, um, you know, 
guess I would just call that a, a learning opportunity to recognize the difference between presence and projection, the difference between presence and projection. So we want to just start letting go of those projections, letting go. Uh, in the Dinah language uh, uh, of my indigenous ancestors, the word we have for letting go or forgiveness means to put something down and then to walk away from it for so long and so far that you could never go back to that place and find it again. It's an interesting way to envision that experience of letting go or um, forgiving something because eventually it has to be no longer in the space of your awareness. It's gone. It doesn't mean you can't remember it. It just means you can't experience it the way that it, you know, had you in the past because you've let that identification and, and, and self-value process uh, shift. I think my favorite analogy about the whole digging of the well being asked deep in the mud is that you have to accept how much muck there is in life, how much mud there is, how messy it can be, and just embrace it, you know. As a martial arts teacher, uh, the thing I'm always bringing people's attention to is nobody wins a fight. I mean, in the sense that karmically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, that kind of violence between one or two people uh, clearly isn't going to help. And you can fight with yourself, which is why I said one or two people. Once you've embraced that uh, there is a messiness to life, then it isn't about, you know... Um, trying to win a fight or not, or, or make it go away or not. It's just recognizing the distinction between that clear nectar of the meditation experience that brings you back to your true self and allows your true self to seek connection with other true selves in your life. You know, those moments are going to seem very clear. But if you make the, the division between these are the only people that I like because the experience isn't messy or it isn't muddy. Uh, that's why there's monasteries, right? So, you know, if you're going to live a, you know, a life in a society and have a job and a kid and make money and do your things, um, you're not going to, I wouldn't recommend expecting a monk's experience of life. And I'm saying that from the experience of a person in my life, in my twenties, I was dedicated to becoming a monastic priest. Uh, luckily or not, I ended up becoming a doctor and a teacher and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I can say that during those years when I was hoping to move into monastic life, it was a control and patience, cynical, uh, motivation because I just wanted to not deal with the mess. And now I'm literally asked deep in the mud of practicing medicine and doing all the things that I do. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and with this opportunity of making these little blog casts, this one's not so little, but uh, over the next few days, months, weeks, I'm going to be sharing some classic uh, parables about meditation and spiritual practice from all over the world. Because I really want to inspire people to recognize that uh, if you can cultivate awareness, consciousness, kindness, patience enough to make friends deeply with your true self, and exist in that way for the rest of your life in inviting everyone you meet to recognize that that's who you are and that you're not full of crap and you're not playing a game, you can inspire all the rest of those people you meet to know that that's possible in the world. Now, having said that, your ego might just have perked up saying, ooh, I'd love to be that person who walks around and makes everyone else feel all, you know, turned on and shiny and stuff. Uh, 
<laughs> Aren't egos fun? They just show right up. So it isn't about that. But just imagine, uh, or maybe even remember, how many people you've met in your life that were meditators, that were really focused, who irritated you because they were really, really arrogant, arrogant about their stuff. And then think of the people you've met, meditators, you know, other people's involved in some kind of practice who are super inspiring to be around because they're just them. They're just calm. They're just here. They're just helpful. You know, they're not uh, wearing a special robe or hat to, you know, force everyone else to recognize, you know, that they're special in some way. And uh, that's what I would encourage you to recognize and ask yourself, are you familiar with what that experience is? If you are, oh, I'd love to meet you and just sit down and be quiet, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's the, I mean, that's your birthright. You know, think of all the other people you've met who are the opposite of that. And what have they, what did, what did they inspire in you? More complaining, more clipboard wielding, comparative, judgy stuff, right? So please take this conversation to heart, to mind, to life. Please uh, invest some time, you know, every day in just being more aware in some way. Uh, play out the scenario in your mind. Ask yourself, is it worth it to me, you know, to spend that much time every day or week or month or, you know, however you choose to organize your practice to go through all of that hard work? And I didn't make it sound very romantic or fun, but hopefully inspiring about the, the, the bigger picture Hopefully you can give yourself um, a self-confirmation that this is worth it to you, because it will be. So that's all I wanted to bring up today, and I probably went on for an hour, but uh, the idea is these little uh, blogcasts are going to probably be about 20 minutes, maybe shorter. Uh, most of them I am going to turn into both uh, uh, blogcasts we're going to put up on like iTunes and uh I'm also going to use these as like YouTube videos and other things just because I think it's a real quick way for me to basically produce content because as a person with a website and a blog and a podcast, my job is to produce content, which as a meditation conversation sounds really funny at this moment. So dig your well, meet yourself, sip the nectar of meditation, the water you are now able to access because you did the work. So next time, I'm going to talk about what's called an awareness frequency practice. Uh, it's an approach to um, bringing more meditative moments into your life. So I hope you're uh, inspired to get into some meditation and uh, I'll chat with you soon about an awareness frequency practice. Have a great day. Cook well, eat well, and feel awesome. <laughs>